Namaste and welcome to Pods by PEI, a policy discussion series brought to you by Policy Entrepreneurs Inc. My name is Sonia Jimmy. In today's episode, we have PEI colleague Aslesh Shrestha in conversation with Kalbana Kanal on dependence and dynamics, Nepal's remittance economy dissected. Kalpana is an economist specializing in public policy, international finance, money and banking development economics, and institutional economics. She currently serves as a senior research fellow and head of the Center for Economic and Infrastructure Development Policy at the Policy Research Institute in Nepal. She obtained her PhD and MA degrees in economics from the University of Missouri, Kansas City, USA. Her research focuses on the comprehensive analysis of economic policy issues at a broader level. In this episode, the discussion navigates Nepal's heavy reliance on remittances, analyzing their pivotal role in driving economic growth while also scrutinizing the associated risks and vulnerabilities, exploring the historical trajectory of this dependency, they uncover the factors behind the reliance and examine their impact across sectors ranging from the macroeconomy to households and sector-specific consequences. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Namaste, I am Aslesh Shrestha. Namaste, I am Kalpana Khanna. Welcome to Pods by PIA, Kalpana. Thank you, Aslesh. To set the stage, let me start the conversation with a statistic from the World Economic Forum. An estimated $626 billion has flown into the low- and middle-income countries in 2022, and it is estimated to rise further. And this kind of gives us an idea that more and more low-middle-income countries are becoming dependent on remittances as it has exceeded the official development assistance flows, and also it is projected to exceed the FDI flows in 2023. So given that remittances on a micro level is important for households, specifically in a country like Nepal, where significant population is still living in poverty, but I would like to focus the conversation mainly on the macro aspects of remittances. So for a country like Nepal, what kind of macro impacts does remittances have? So... All of us know that Nepal is dependent on remittance, right? And right now, the share of remittance in our GDP is almost one-third, one-fourth, I guess. And uh, this does not include remittance from India, and also it does not include remittance from informal sources such as Hundi, right? Similarly, remittance has emerged as the largest source of foreign exchange earnings right now, um, remittance has been maintaining the balance of payment surplus, except during the pandemic years. And also, remittance has helped Nepal breeze the resource gap. And when it comes to government revenue, remittance finance imports, they are the biggest source of government tax revenue. And also, historically, if we look back Remittances have helped Nepal observe external economic shocks. And also, if you look at the economic survey 2022-23 data, we see that 15.1% of the population is below the poverty line. And most of them live in rural areas. And the main contributor to reduction in poverty is remittance. So remittance has significant 
positive impact in our macroeconomy. And our economy is dependent on remittance. Definitely. So as we see the macroeconomic impacts, you've also pointed out that Nepal has become dependent on remittances. We've seen a stable inflow of remittances for the past two decades, due to which, like you said, imports have been financed mainly because of the remittance inflow. But we are seeing a significant dependency on an external source of income. So how does this dependency create risks or adverse impacts on the economy? So in the short run, you pointed out that, you know, because of remittance, uh, consumerism has gone up. And also this has led to rise in imports. And also uh, because of that, our currency valuation exchange rate has gone up. And this has led to symptoms like Dutch disease. And this may have some adverse impact on exports. But we see that there are some positive effects for some households. But for some other households, it may have some adverse impacts, especially families at the margins because of lack of assets, because of some caste relations, gender, or their ethnicity, they cannot enter into the migration chains, or it may be difficult for them to enter. And sometimes the migration circuits can be impoverishing because of their exploitative nature. The recruitment processes are tough, and sometimes uh, workers lose their jobs uh, or their employment contracts prematurely. They can have some health impacts low pays. We can see that in some of our Nepali workers who are in the Middle East, right? And also, as the share of remittance in our GDP is increasing, the role of the state in providing public services and social provisioning is also declining. So that's also adverse impact. But we've also heard uh, about the capital which is uh, coming in going into the wrong sectors, as we say, unproductive sectors. Can you uh, elaborate a bit on that? Yeah, right now, consumption is the main thing. But if we look at consumption, if we look at the history of uh, Nepali people or our economy, we are historically relatively poor and people did not have enough to eat, people did not have enough to wear, and their basic needs were not met. So if some of the income is going to consumption, I don't see it as a negative thing, because sometimes certain level of consumption also helps the economy. And also the decline in poverty is the indicator that some consumption is necessary at the initial stage. But now that uh, poverty has significantly declined, It's about time to direct the remittance to productive sectors. These are some very interesting observations you've made. But uh, I am curious about how uh, Nepal has reached this stage where we're uh, so dependent on uh, remittance inflow for most of our imports. And like we've seen in the past few years, we've struggled when the remittances are low. So how have we reached this stage? We have to contextualize ourselves, right? Migration and remittance flows are not new phenomenon. And all of us know that traditionally we used to have Lauris who migrated to India or Pakistan and they sent money home. 
right? And the families that had one of their members working outside Nepal had relatively stable income and were better off. But if we look at the recent history, if we look over the past four years, it's not just Nepal. A global trend has emerged within the international community and a new paradigm has evolved. And this new paradigm has two areas of migration and development linked together. And this new nexus is called migration development nexus. And in this new form of development, the government institutions, international financial organizations, NGOs, and the private sector actors have become interested in migration and remittance and their potential for poverty reduction and development. So all of the interest of these organizations have been channeled towards remittance as a source for poverty elevation or development. So that's the recent change. And because Nepal is not that far away from this global trend and global discourse of development, it happens slowly through various policies or the new trend that I mentioned, right? It comes with a variety of institutions, and these institutions become involved in activities linking migration and remittances to development, and also new institutions are formed, new policies have been prescribed. All of these, the whole ecosystem and the train led to this dependence because the main motto of this trend is leveraging remittance for development. So I'll continue on that. So when it comes to popular perceptions of out-migration, like currently the one you pointed out is about the migration development nexus, which shows like any developing country has to pass through this phase of development where people migrate and earn money and send them back because of the high, higher wage rates in other countries. And there's kind of a free flow of labor into countries facilitating that. Mm-hmm. Uh, one narrative could be that. The other narrative could be that of a failing state where the state is failing to provide for its citizens and hence the citizens have to take matters into their own hands and go to other countries and fend for themselves. So which narrative do you side by? I wouldn't take side, but let me continue like, you know, what I mentioned earlier, right? So this new trend, the migration development nexus. So the novelty of this nexus or this new development trend is that migration and remittances have gained popularity as an instrument to finance development and reduce poverty. So that's the main uh, narrative. But some of the studies have challenged the underlying narrative. For example, one of the studies conducted in Mexico argued that increasing migration rate and remittance flow increase levels of dependency in three ways. So the first is migrant communities move away from their base subsistence agriculture And second, increased demand for consumer goods. So we have also seen a rise in consumerism in Nepal, right? So the rise in demand for consumer goods increased conspicuous consumption. So that means people buying imported items, luxury goods, and this has been leakaging the hard-earned income to foreign countries in the form of imports. So we are losing foreign exchange. And the third one, remittance flows 
intensifying local inequality that has been observed. So it has been argued that there's high cost of international migration. Actually, we see that in Nepal as well. So people, because of various inefficiencies in the migration chain, people or the workers end up spending a lot. So migration is not easily accessible to everyone, especially not for the people in the margins. So because of all these, there is a form of increased level of dependency. And also government often tend to fall back on remittance flows for microeconomic stability that magnifies the level of dependence. So based on experiences of other developing country, as well as all of these applies in Nepal as well. But you did point out about certain public moral hazards that come into place when people migrate and most of the families are then taken care of by the one that has migrated rather than the government. Right. So what I was trying to say is that usually the state has a role to play to provide, let's say, health, education, care, the basic social security needs of the people. But with increased migration, the public sphere is receding, like the size of the government in terms of providing service to the people is declining and heavy reliance, over-reliance on the privately generated remittance is increasing. Right now, everyone is relying on that one income that family is receiving. So even the state is uh, moving its responsibilities to the people. So this can be alarming because the state has a role to play. Even in capitalist developed economies like the United States, the states provides basic education, health care, and it takes care of its old, differently able people. And we see that slowly declining in the developing world, and people are looking up to remittance flows for those purposes as well. So this has been called as a public moral hazard in the literature. So given that you've pointed out that uh, there is a possibility of public moral hazard, that when the government steps away from their responsibilities, the labor workers have to fend off for themselves and their families. But is there a choice for the government of taking matter into their own hands and not allowing people to migrate and keeping them in the country and utilizing their labor, specifically when the international system is facilitating migration in an easier manner with the financial systems and the policies becoming more relaxed for labor migration? That's a tough one, Aslis. So right now, curving migration would be counterintuitive for Nepal, especially in the short run, because as we know, Nepali economy relies on foreign assistance even to conduct our budgeted projects. And also, as we are discussing second wave of reforms in our economy, we are talking about building an economy that encourages inflow of foreign direct investments. So this is our domestic context, whereas in the contemporary international financial system, remittance has been seen as an asset that can be securitized and can be used as collateral for loans in international capital markets. So that trend has already emerged in the international financial system. So actually, we can utilize 
future remittance flow as an asset to get loans from international financial markets. As we graduate from LDC, this could be a possibility for us. So there is some room that we can benefit from that, but depends on how we do our economic diplomacy, how we manage, how we put things together. And also in the international context, remittance are also used as guarantees for foreign debt. And international rating agencies rank credit worthiness of a country almost at the same level as that of oil exporters. And some of the countries such as Brazil, El Salvador, Honduras, Jamaica, etc., they have offered bonds backed by remittance from United States. Uh, and even in the case of Nepal, the government once issued diaspora bond in 2010, I believe, to raise funds for infrastructure development. I don't know how successful it was, but this could be done in future. As we are talking about use infrastructure development in Nepal, green and sustainable infrastructure development in Nepal. So this could be a future possibility. So we don't want to rule that out. And also in the current context, institutions such as the World Bank, the UK Department of International Development, International Organization for Migration, etc., are the leaders in bringing this notion or contemporary reforms or discourses in international financial system. And the direction of development is like the financialization of development, and remittance can be used as an asset that can be securitized. So I don't see dependence on remittance going away anytime soon. We just have to think how Nepal can benefit from these ongoing developments. So that means more and more burden on the migrant laborers in the foreseeable future? Yeah, having said that, in the short run, I don't see that going away anytime soon. But we have to start planning for the future right now. So this could be the short-term plan, and it could be mid-term plan as well, but in the long run. Creating employment at home can have no alternatives. So we have to work towards making our economy grow so that more jobs can be created at home so that our youth do not have to migrate, or majority of our youth do not have to migrate. Hi there, this is Kushi from Policy Entrepreneurs Inc. We hope you're enjoying Pods by PEI. As you know, creating this show takes a lot of time and resources, and we rely on the support of our community to keep things going. If you've been enjoying the show and would like to help us out, we'd really appreciate it if you could become a patron on Patreon. Patreon is a platform that allows listeners like you to support creators like us with a small monthly donation. Your support will go a long way in helping us to continue creating high-quality content for you. So if you're interested in supporting our show and becoming a part of our community, head on over to Patreon and become a patron today. You can find us at patreon.com slash Every little bit helps, and we can't thank you enough for your support. Now, let's get back to the episode. So now that we've discussed the majority of the macro aspects and some of your findings from your papers, I'd like to bring the conversation to one interesting concept you pointed out in your paper, that is of the transnational household. So uh, could you 
briefly elaborate what a transnational household is and what are the impacts of these households in a country like Nepal and how does the transnational household change the social fabric of communities? I would like to first contextualize how this happened. As we are aware, since the 80s, during the Thatcher and Reagan eras, liberalization and deregulation was the main mantra. And as most of us are aware, the mandate of globalization was free flow of capital as well as labor. And that was also termed as liberalization, deregulation, through liberalization and deregulation. So the policy reforms that took place during that era uh, made mobility of capital relatively easier. But labor mobility across national boundaries still continues to be highly regulated. It's not that easy. Capital flow is relatively easy, but labor flow is not easy. So it's this context, right? And in my research, I referred to this economic anthropologist, Karl Poliani, and I go back to his 1944 book, The Great Transformation, where he calls land, labor, and capital fictitious commodities. And as we are aware, commodity is something that is produced to be sold in the market. But land, labor, and capital, we do not produce them. But now, land, labor, and capital are sold in the market. So based on Polanyan terms, labor can be called a fictitious commodity because it was not produced to be sold in the market, but now we do in the forms of migrant workers. So migrant receiving countries still restrict the duration of paid work and residence visas for all low-paid occupations, and it's relatively hard for the workers. So this has led to the emergence of global householding or the concept of transnational household. So what this means is that one person migrates, let's say a male or a female in the family, but they have family members, those are left behind in the home country. And in the host country, now they have a new migrant household. Maybe there's one person or they have some friends together. And if we are talking about care work, female workers or male workers migrating to provide care work, domestic help, the household receiving those services. So you have, you know, migrant worker, the family left behind, the household that's receiving the services, right? The workers that are providing care work. So all these dynamics that are interdependent with each other. So all these is like an ecosystem termed as transnational household. And the labor migration is supported by this concept of transnational household. But the transnational household breaks when the migrated worker can actually settle. For example, if labor migrates to Australia or United States, they provide green card or permanent residency and give option to workers. And most of these are skilled workers and relatively lower skilled workers do not have these options. So that's why you see migrants going to Middle East or other countries send home money like uh, the most of the remittance we receive is from the unskilled workers, whereas uh, the migrants uh, who go to U.S. or Australia, the developed world, they tend to settle there after some time. And once they settle, there's not this transnational household, like the immediate family is there. So they stop sending money. So this whole concept is centered around the idea of temporariness, temporary migration. Once it's a permanent migration, then remittance flow 
stops. So that's how we have to understand this idea. Like, you know, remittance, relying on transnational household, which again is centered around the concept of temporariness. Like you've said, basically the families which are affected, let's say, temporarily because one family member has migrated to provide for them. So what kind of social impacts does that bring or what kind of impacts does it have on the social fabric of communities which have a majority of families which have at least a member that have migrated? You know, we can see that as families migrate because of this idea of transnational household. The family is not together. It can have, especially if the mother migrates, there is a care deficit, meaning the older member of the family will have to look after the youngers. And when the father migrates, usually the mother is the one who is looking after the kids. And studies have shown that children who are raised by both parents do well in terms of discipline or education. And also because the husband, wife, children are not together, this can bring lots of emotional, social issues. And we often see that in our society as well. Because you want family to be together, and most of these host countries usually do not allow the whole. And it can have implication in terms of care deficit. And also there could be many other impacts in other sectors like labor deficiency in the sending country. So I will stick to the labor deficiency part. And let's talk about the labor market in Nepal. So how has the continuous exodus of unskilled labor impacted the labor-heavy sectors of construction, manufacturing, and agriculture sector in Nepal? So as we see, you know, we have some studies mention the population dividend, but we haven't been able to utilize that. And especially now that Nepal needs to do a lot in the infrastructure sector, but as we migrate our young population to Middle East, we are bringing in workers from the neighboring countries to do our construction work, as well as our agricultural works. So this has a huge impact. And also this increases informalization of the economy, especially when workers from the neighboring countries like India come and many of the payments happens through informal channels. Okay. So specifically, I'll talk about one sector, which is the agriculture sector, because Nepal has been dependent on agriculture for as far as we know. And in your paper, you've talked about certain impacts of out-migration on the agriculture sector, which is specifically because of rural gentrification. And there is also the deactivation of agricultural land, as we say, and eventually um, the land which was used for farming becomes an asset which, uh, not an asset, let's say it becomes a speculative instrument, right? Mm -hmm. So can you elaborate on how this has been going on in, in the context of Nepal? Sure. So first of all, when people in the rural areas um, who traditionally relied on agriculture leave for overseas work, the arable land that they use for cultivation of crops becomes more available. And sometimes this attracts the landless laborers and they become sharecroppers. And this phenomena could be called re-peasantization, 
So meaning people who didn't have land are now the peasants or the farmers. So this is one phenomena. But when the migrants return, right? Um, so one of the forms of investment for the migrant worker is investing on land, real estate. So the returning migrants, they engage in buying land as an asset to hold. And they do this for a speculative purpose or as an investment. And these buyers who bought the land for a speculative purpose, they keep the land uncultivated. And thereby this land is rapidly converted to fallow land. And this restricts, this also restricts the landless to the land, right? And reduces the demand for agricultural labor because the landless people who used to work as sharecroppers, they no longer has access to land. And this furthers the process of rural gentrification, meaning the landless people who were sharecroppers now don't have access to land, then they have to move out of the rural areas. And eventually these people have to move to urban areas. So encourages urbanization, and people start looking for off-farm works. And this eventually leads to deactivation of agricultural lands. And many of the researchers have seen these patterns emerging in rural Nepal. So can this be linked to our import dependency in agricultural products at the moment? This definitely has some impact because many of the studies and even in the news we have heard or read that you know the monkeys are taking over agricultural farms, right? Meaning the forest is expanding to the agricultural lands, meaning people are not taking, there are not enough people to take care of the land, right? So when uh, people cannot grow for subsistence, they have to rely on, you know, market. And again, when people have to depend on the market to buy their basic needs, they are utilizing the money from remittance to do this. So we see this breakage subsistence agriculture, which is uh, not a good thing in the long run. So we can definitely see an interesting uh, chain of events that have unfolded in the context of Nepal. But uh, another interesting, or let's say another cautionary scenario we have to uh, look at is about the demand for certain professional services in labor-demanding countries that can lead to oversupply of labor in countries like Nepal. Specifically, I'll take a case of nursing services. So because of certain demands in countries like Australia or Canada or the United Kingdom for nursing services, we can see that there's been an oversupply of nurses in Nepal and because only limited nurses get to migrate to those countries because of an oversupply in the labor market in Nepal, the nurses seem to be uh, heavily exploited in terms of working hours, in terms of the money they receive. So uh, what can the government do to minimize or mitigate uh, these kind of scenarios? Okay, good question, Asli. So let me contextualize this in terms of global care chains. We already talked about transnational household. And one of the impact I mentioned is care deficit. So, and because of the care deficit, this has led to global care chains. And let me explain what that is. So in the higher income countries, like the Western world, 
women are going out to the job market. And because of that, care deficit has been created. And these have generated demand for care work that has increasingly been supplied by immigrant women from lower-income countries. So in the United States, most of the nannies are from the Latin American countries. And if you see in Philippines or countries like that, the nannies are from India or in Israel, some of the domestic work or the nannies or the ace care workers are from countries like Nepal, Bangladesh. So this has led to the global care change. You specifically talked about nursing, but here I take nursing as a care work because uh, most of those nurses from Nepal go to Australia or UK are engaged in care work, including ACE care, sometimes nursing home. They work for aging population, right? And we have to understand that these care workers or in general migrant workers are racialized, right? Gendered, especially in care, it's female. So gendered and often from poorer reasons, including rural communities. And they take on care labor while these care workers are providing care work in the relatively developed world. They are transferring their own familial and community responsibilities to other even poorer caregivers. So when a female from Nepal migrates to, let's say, Philippines or Israel to provide care to the families there, who's taking care of her children? Maybe someone from rural Nepal, right? So there's this shift in responsibilities from the wealthy to the poor to the poorer. You you see this global care chain. So it extends from... United States, the global north to the global south. And this has been organized as a result of crisis that neither the states of origin nor of the destination have been able to solve, meaning like the countries that demand care work and the suppliers, because it's a chain. So the result is a huge care gap from richer to poorer families, from the global north to the global south. And again, in between these, care ethics has been compromised. And this, again, let's situate this in remittance-driven international development paradigm. So it has created new vulnerabilities and feminization of migration has contributed to changing family dynamics and non-immigrant women have been involved in family care, household allocation of resources. Um, And some of the impacts include emotional stress on migrant mothers, caregivers, children in transnational families, aging population in transnational families. Taking everything into consideration, what you've said, what we've discussed, we know that Nepal will be, for the foreseeable future, dependent on incomes of migrants. So um, how can uh, Nepal or the Nepali government manage this migration for the betterment of the workers and their families? So some of the existing problems includes like the departure system in Nepal. Migrant workers are not provided orientation before they leave. The laws are dilly-dally, you know, and we don't provide enough skills to the workers before they leave. So they are getting 
like menial payments and also access to communication network is poor. So enhancing skills to the workers before they leave and being aware that this international migration chain has created vulnerabilities and there's exploitation. And through economic and labor diplomacy, we have to ensure that our workers are situated in countries with strong labor laws. And also we have to minimize human trafficking. If we can ensure that people can migrate because they want to and not because they have to, that will be a big progress. But like we've discussed about the transnational household, you said that there are certain social issues these families face. So is the government aware about these things? And do you think they have certain policies that cater to transnational households specifically? I'm not very aware if there are specific policies for the families that are left behind. I know the government has some policies for the returning migrants, but I'm not sure if they have any policy for the left-behind household. Um, I know that, especially in the banking financial sector, the return on remittance is 1% higher, the interest is higher. I don't know if you count that as a policy, but I haven't seen anything like that. But, you know, that's something to consider. By so, policymakers. W- so what do you think would be a good policy or a good start for government to uh, for focusing on these households? Right now, it's very segregated. Like uh, even our data keeping system, how systematic it is. So maybe formalizing and making sure and keeping records of who's going, what's happening. But the thing is, right now, migration is. Not because people want to, but it's because people have to. Meaning all these happens in very, um, like, it's a tough process, right? It's a very taxing process for the immigrant workers. And most of the unskilled workers who migrate are at the bottom tier of the economy, even though they are helping the economy. They come from marginalized family, rural areas, right? And it's an expensive process. At least if the government can formalize the process and ethical recruitment and punish the human traffickers and also ensure that the migrant workers, like the collaterals, you know, especially some of the workers lose their only piece of land as collateral sometimes. So if the government can facilitate that, that would be great. And also another thing is we are losing so many workers in the Middle East because of the uh, stringent working conditions. At least if we can take care of the families of the workers who we have already lost, that would be a good step in the right direction. Definitely. I have one more question for you and we'll end the conversation. But this is a difficult one, I would say. So how can the Nepali government leverage the ever-increasing remittance inflow for more than just imports or loan repayment? So, you know, we are in the verge of LDC graduation right now. And with LDC graduation, one of the criteria for the graduation was the Economic Vulnerability Index. Even though this index does not capture 
vulnerabilities such as dependence on remittance and other structural volatility. So dependence on remittance, over-dependence on remittance for macroeconomy can make a country volatile to external shocks. Especially if we look back uh, during the COVID era, remittance declined and for a brief period of time, our balance of payment was negative, like really bad. So what we could do is we need to diversify our source of foreign exchange. And this can happen if we can increase our export base. How can we do that? By utilizing our population dividend domestically, right? In the industrial sector. And even if we look into our data, like the structure of our economy, we see that the service sector right now occupies a higher share of the GDP. And service sector from tourism to ICT, information and communication technology. And some of the ICT-related jobs can be done with minimal skills. So we could train some of these unskilled workers. So our vocational education system could be improved so that we can enhance the skill of our workers and try to retain them at home Or even if they migrate, if they have some skills, they'll earn more. So that's one. And another is, you know, we have these job guarantee programs. We can extend the job guarantee programs to infrastructure sector, clean energy, because we are moving into energy transition. So this hydroelectricity project, through our vocational education system, we can train existing workers or returning migrants and engage them in, uh, you know, like the jobs for the future will be in the infrastructure sector, ICT sector, energy transition, and also in high-value agriculture sector, like incentivizing and driving our policy, like subsidies through government incentives to create more employment at home so that they can engage the youth or our population dividend. So uh, definitely channeling these inflows from remittances to the specific sectors you've mentioned would be the right way to go. Thank you for ending on the wonderful note. I've enjoyed the conversation and I'd like to thank you from PEI. Thank you, Aslis, for having me. It's wonderful talking to you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Pods by PEI. I hope you enjoyed Aslisha's conversation with Kalpana on dependence and dynamics, Nepal remittance economy dissected. Today's episode was produced by Nirjan Rai with support from Kushihang, Ridesh Sapkota and me, Sonia Jimmy. The episode was recorded at PEI studio and was edited by Ridesh Sapkota and Nirjan Rai. Our theme music is courtesy of Rohit Shakya from Jindabad. If you liked today's episode, please subscribe to our podcast. Also, please do us a favor by sharing us on social media and leave a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. For PEI's video-related content, please search for Policy Entrepreneurs on YouTube. 
To catch the latest from us on Nepal's policy and politics, please follow us on Twitter at tweet to pei That's tweet followed by the number 2 and PEI, and on Facebook at Policy Entrepreneurs Inc. You can also visit PEI.center to learn more about us. Thanks once again from me, Sonia. We'll see you soon in our next episode.